I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, scholar and academic Matt McManus, who previously appeared on this show to discuss his book, The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, returns to discuss his newest offering, The Political Right and Equality, Turning Back the Tide of Egalitarian Modernity. In this conversation, we'll be discussing the history of the political right dating back to the French Revolution, and the ways in which Aristotle, Nietzsche, and the Russian novelist Dostoevsky have influenced right-wing thought. We'll also discuss the new formulations of the American right, including national conservatism, post-liberalism, and the Eugenicon, or Nietzschean, right. All that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views. And with that being said, let's get right to it with Matt McManus. Welcome back to Parallax Views. It's been a while since he's been on the program, but uh, Matt McManus, who's sort of become the expert on the political right. I know he has a new book out, The Political Right, and equality, turning back the tide of egalitarian modernity. A lot of people are talking about it. I've, I've seen him referenced lately, and I think it was a, a Salon article. I've seen him all over the place. And his book has been uh, endorsed by the great Samuel Moyne. I, I saw that blurb at the very beginning, and it's funny because I just interviewed Samuel, and uh, I'm yeah. a big fan of both of you. So it was cool seeing Samuel's name pop up in the book and give the political right and equality a uh, nice little blurb. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing really well. Yeah. Uh, I also just wanted to say, uh, you know, I was reading Sam when I was about 20 years old and I just 
was amazed uh, at everything he was able to do. Uh, and so, what books were you reading of his or work? Last Utopia. Uh, every one of uh, the people in grad school um, that I knew was reading it, arguing with it because uh, of its kind of approach to human rights. So it was really scary asking him for that, but uh, I was super happy that he gave that endorsement. Uh, and I can't say enough good things uh, about his new book on Cold War liberalism either. Uh, liberalism I it, against I think, itself. Excellent book. Excellent book. Right? I have a review of my own coming out in Liberal Currents, but uh, I really think it's his best work so far. So, you know, Moyne is uh, an extraordinary guy, and I hope the best is yet to come. So let's dive right into the political right and equality. How does this tie into some of your previous work? I know you've written about uh, Jordan Peterson. Oh, God, we could talk for like an hour or two about him. Uh, I know that neither of us are fans. And I it's weird because with me, like I don't even like Peterson on like a um, religious level. It's kind of interesting. I've always taken to the theologian uh, David Bentley Hart's criticisms of Jordan Peterson. I kind of see Peterson as a heretic, you know, maybe I'm being too much of a Catholic here talking about that aspect of it. But uh, how did I, I, I'm digressing here. How, how did you end up going from writing about Peterson to the right more broadly? Uh, sure. Well, that's its own kind of complicated journey, right? Uh, so just by my background, you know, I grew up in a pretty small town, very conservative. Uh, in fact, you know, our member of parliament, uh, for those American listeners, you know, member of parliament is basically like your congressman or congresswoman right now, uh, is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. So, you know, go figure. Uh, and I was always interested in conservatism. I was never right wing. Uh, but, you know, I had a lot of conservative friends, conservative relatives. I even spent a lot of time during my undergrad uh, with the Carleton campus conservatives, arguing with them, drinking with them, uh, sometimes drinking too much with them, frankly. Uh, and they even had an award that was made up for me at the end of it, you know, best non-conservative member of the Carleton campus conservatives. Uh, but, you know, during grad school, I spent a lot of time reading right-wing literature, uh, gradually moving to the left for a number of different reasons, but re really catalyzed uh, my interest in this academically uh, was like so many people, the rise of Trump uh, in 2016. Uh, and, you know, by way of full disclosure, right, uh, I'll never forget the night I was there with all my buddies, we were drinking whiskey uh, and having you know, pork sliders. It was election night, uh, it's a big thing at my house, and we were all talking about Hillary Clinton, you know, she's a neoliberal shill. When she comes in, we're going to have to, you know, organize and try to push her left. Democratic Party sucks. Uh, and then, of course, we all know what happened. You know, we woke up the next day. Uh, the Donald was in office uh, and many of us uh, were shocked. Were, uh, were you was, awake and uh, with your friends when it, it was basically in the bag? Oh, yeah. Everyone knew because I, I'll tell you what, I mean, when Trump won late in that night, I had people texting me. You know, like yeah. terrified of what would happen next. I mean, people forget just how wild that election night was. I mean, I had people freaking out, you know, uh, like liberal friends of mine being like, oh, my God, they're going to bring in concentration camps. I mean, they, they, yeah. people were talking like Alex Jones for a second there, but it was a very wild time. Oh, absolutely. Right. Uh, and, you know, let's not forget the 2016 election was really a fucking weird one. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, th I think you, there was some overreaction, but I also think that, like, I mean, given what happened with Trump over the years, I mean, we saw ice and whatnot. So, I mean, it was a very sort of dangerous authoritarian drift that we had. Oh, absolutely. Right. Uh, and I mean, this is one of the things uh, I ended up reading an awful lot of conservative literature for quite a few years after that. Uh, and then my first book on the subject was The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, uh, which I think I talked with you a little bit about back uh, in the day. We did a whole episode on it. I, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Right. Uh, and this kind of diagnoses Trumpism 
uh, Bolsonarism uh, and Johnsonism, you know, Boris Johnson, and it seems like forever ago now, uh, as kind of uh, reactionary symptoms uh, of post-modernity, drawing really heavily on people like Fred Jameson, Mark Fisher. Uh, and I'm still happy with this book and this thesis. You know, I would rewrite it and change a lot of things right now. Uh, but the major accusation that people made about this book uh, was, okay, you know, maybe you're right that Trump, Bolsonaro, Johnson, a couple of others uh, are kind of these postmodern reactionaries or postmodern conservatives, whatever, right? Uh, but you really don't do a lot of credit to the arguments that the right puts forward on their own terms. You're kind of diagnosing the contemporary right as a symptom of this postmodern kind of moment uh, and then using that to kind of bludgeon them downwards. Uh, and I hope at least most people would say I can be receptive to criticism. So I was like, okay. That's true. Uh, I thought, you know, the sections I had on Evan Burke and Michael Oakeshott would be sufficient. But if that's not enough, then I will actually start taking these people uh, at their word and responding to them systematically uh, by just taking their arguments at face value and trying to say what I think is right about them and what I think is wrong about them. One thing I want to get into right off the bat here, and this, I, this sort of ties into what I was mentioning about Jordan Peterson. I think that we have sort of um, an image that we create of the right, where there's a media image of the right that those of us uh, to the left of like Reagan, to the left of Trump have, <laughs> where we assume that, oh, you know, all rightists are like religious people, right? Uh, so, you know, Jordan Peterson, Christian, right? But there's also, I would say, an emergent sort of, I, I hate to quote him, but Ross thought I don't think was entirely wrong when he said <laughs> there's an emergent post-Christian right that's very into things like eugenics. Uh, we see this with characters like Bronze Age Pervert. I think the right wing is much more uh, diverse than a lot of us give it credit for. That's sort of what I'm getting at. And I, I was wondering if we could define terms a little bit, because we'll talk about the political right. We'll use terms like conservative and we'll use terms like reactionary or at the farthest end, uh, fascist. But all these terms necessarily have different meanings. So let's dissect what we mean by the political right and what we mean by uh, conservatism and even reactionary. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I also want to say that uh, another really good book on this uh, is Matthew Rose's uh, After Liberalism, where he talks about the new kinds of post-Christian right and the intellectuals that are backing them up um, you know, in the uh, 20th century and now contemporaneously. Right? Uh, I disagree with Matthew about a lot because he's way too right-wing for me, but uh, if people are interested, the kind of takes on these figures and the summations of them are really good. But to your main question, right? Uh, so I wrestled with this an awful lot myself, uh, and I should add that I'm not alone. Uh, if you read books about conservatism or books about the right uh, by conservative authors like Edmund Neal, uh, who wrote a really good book on this called Just Conservatism, uh, he points out that there's almost no uh, definitional agreement uh, amongst conservative analysts of their own tradition uh, about what their core commitments are. Uh, and he says some people are almost willing to say, let's throw in the towel and just say that the right is whatever the right says it is at any given moment, right? Uh, Evan doesn't agree with that, and he kind of develops his own Burkean definition. But that's just to say uh, it's a difficult thing to pin down. But ultimately, after spending a lot of time reading these guys, researching them, uh, taking them kind of at their word, I came to the conclusion that F.A. Hayek uh, was actually right in his diagnosis of the unity uh, of right-wing thought. Uh, Nothing's something that uh, I often say, but, you know, Hayek, you know, is right about some things uh, and he is right about the right. Uh, and in his essay, Why I Am Not a Conservative, Hayek says that the fundamental conviction 
uh, of conservatism, and I would add the political right, is this notion that there are recognizably superior persons uh, in society. Uh, now, how one understands recognizably superior uh, and by what metric one evaluates that, that's extremely different depending uh, upon the figure, the movement, the time, uh, you name it. And this is one of the reasons there's a great deal of diversity on the right. But this core conviction that there are recognizably superior or demonstrably superior people in society is what unifies all the different streams uh, of right-wing thought together. Uh, and I also reference um, the very famous critic uh, of John Stuart Mill's, James James Stevens, on this point, uh, where he says that liberalism uh, and liberals have got it deeply wrong, right, uh, with this belief that we need a society without superiors, right, where everybody is equal. Uh, he says uh, in his book, Liberty, Equality, and Fraternity, that to obey a real superior uh, is a great virtue. Uh, and then he lays out his criteria for what it means to be a real superior, right? Uh, so that's my definition, shorthand, if you want, of what the political right is. And it's interesting. I mean, we could go on and on about what we mean by the political right and conservative. But what I find interesting is that I think that there is also a problem that those on the left and the sort of liberal end of things. So, I mean, I know people conflate the two, but I think there are sure. people to the left of the Democrats and the the sort of mainstream Democrats and Biden. So I, I sort of uh, separate the left and liberals in some way, all, all, although you know, there is a liberal left as well. But I guess what I was going to get at is I think ever since the era of John Stewart, there's been this mentality, uh, this sort of smug mentality that, oh, everyone on the right is just a clownish sort of moron. Uh, they're objects of not only ridicule, but sort of like mocking laughter. Um, and to be honest, I don't think that that gives the right enough credit. And I think it underestimates the right. I think there's a lot of thinkers out there that I would classify as right wing or reactionary that are very, very smart, and that mm -hmm. we often don't uh, adequately grapple with on the left. Uh, my go to for that is someone like John Gray. You know, I think John Gray is an incredibly uh, astute thinker, very thoughtful. And I think you have to grapple with thinkers like him. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the image we have on the right of, uh, about the right, that they're sort of just these clownish characters that don't need to be taken seriously? Because I think it's been a real mistake and continues to be a mistake when we talk about the right wing. Yeah, absolutely. And I would add that there are a number of impressive uh, conservative figures working right now, right? Uh, now, don't get me wrong, you know, I do plenty uh, to try to deflate some of the more clownish ones, uh, you know, from Jordan Peterson through James Lindsay to, you know, God forbid, uh, Dave Rubin or Mark Levin, right? Uh, but these people don't really do justice uh, to the depth and complexity uh, of right-wing thought and leftists to assume that what Jordan Peterson says is reflective of a truly seminal conservative intellectual uh, are being a bit naive, I would think, uh, and not taking our duty seriously to know our enemy, to use Matt Sipman's phrase, right? Uh, and, you know, Sam Adler Bell's phrase, excuse me. Uh, so I would say that this conception uh, of the political right uh, really begins uh, with the French Revolution, where what you start to see immediately in responses to Burke uh, is this idea that Burkean ideas and the society that Burke is defending uh, is passe uh, and doesn't really have an intellectual leg to stand upon. Uh, so, for instance, you can read Mary Wollstonecraft's very interesting critique and very effective critique uh, of Burke's reflections on the revolution in France uh, and her vindication of the rights of man, uh, where she says, 
I take it from the whole tenor of your reflections that you have a moral antipathy to reason, right? Uh, and if there is anything like arguments or first principles in your entire examination uh, that don't contradict one another almost immediately, it's that we should reverence the rust of antiquity, uh, you know, with this almost childlike innocence, right? Or this childlike fidelity. Uh, and she says, what a ridiculous idea, right? Uh, who could even assert that as a plausible argument? Uh, it's really just almost a more of affectation. Uh, and this carries forward, as you mentioned, to somebody like John Stuart Mill, right? Uh, John Stuart Mill, um, who once upon a time was aligned with the right and seems to finally be gravitating back to his deserved place on the left uh, as a liberal socialist, uh, once described conservatives as the stupid party uh, to invoke Russell Kirk, right? Something he never let Mill uh, let go, uh, never let go. Uh, you know, where Bill said, look, I don't really, I'm never going to say that all conservatives are stupid, uh, but most stupid people are conservative. Uh, and he says, I take this to just be a self-evident truth uh, that anybody could recognize. Uh, and then he goes on in his speech to say that conservative parties tend to generally win because uh, there is a kind of enduring mass of stupidity in any given society that they're consistently able to tap into uh, and mobilize. And as long as that enduring mass of stupidity is there in your society, there'll always be kind of conservative movements that are able to ride it uh, down into the sludge, if you will. Uh, and you know this goes forward uh, into the 20th century with somebody like Lionel Trilling, for example. Uh, Lionel Trilling uh, famously kind of said, Conservatism is so passe that there's nothing very much to be said about it at this point, uh, except that it's a kind of rearguard set of affectations, you know, a series of what do you call it, irritable mental gestures that try to resemble arguments, but are not themselves arguments, right? Uh, now, again, don't get me wrong. I think that Mary Wilsoncraft launched a very effective critique of Burke uh, that I can completely empathize with John Strip Mill having to deal with a whole bunch of really bad arguments directed his way. Uh, and I'm sure that Lionel Trilling had good reasons for his own motivations as well. Uh, but I think that they're all mistaken in assuming that the right is not capable of putting forward sustained theoretical uh, and practical arguments for his positions uh, that are very powerful uh, and at points even profound. Now, that doesn't mean that the left can't respond to them very effectively. I think that we can and that we must, right? Uh, and indeed, I ultimately think that conservatism and the political right is just wrong, more or less about everything, right? Uh, but we do need to take them seriously if we're going to effect effectively rebut them. And that's kind of what I set out to do in this book, uh, to deny the idea that the right is the stupid party, uh, to use Mill slash Perk's term, uh, but also, but to still assert that they are the wrong party. Real quick, too, I just wanted to offer something uh you know, in some ways, I even hesitate to use the term conservative when when describing the political right now, because, I mean, I, I don't think the modern right wing since Trump really wants to conserve society or maintain societal stability anymore. Uh, and I, I think you could make arguments even for things like Black Lives Matter that it's good to support it for social stability. I think th there is like a weird way in which you could have a sort of conservative argument for uh, change and reform in society um, that 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 could be defined as conservative if we define conservative as maintaining the stability of society. I think what we have now is something that wants to overthrow the existing order. So someone like uh, the arch paleocon Sam Francis <laughs> sort of expressed this view, I believe, in Chronicles magazine back in the 90s, where he said, you know, we're really not conservatives. We actually want to overthrow 
the existing order. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I know you talk about figures like Alexander Dugan in this book. And I, I think there is a brand of conservatism that almost views itself as a revolution or what I guess we would call counter-revolutionary. Yeah, absolutely. And that's very much a prominent aspect uh, or prominent movement in the contemporary American right. Uh, if people want to learn a little bit more about this, you know, don't take my word for it. Uh, just go read American Mind. Uh, Google Glenn Elmer's conservatism is no longer enough. Yeah, what's in the title, right? Uh, and that's exactly what he argues, kind of drawing on this Francis-type ethos where he says, look, uh, liberals and progressives have been in the driver's seat in the United States for a very long time. Uh, they've completely corrupted our institutions and our culture, uh, and they even seem bafflingly to have a kind of majority support or at least consistent uh, demotic support. So what's there left to conserve, right? Uh, there's nothing left to conserve. Now what we need to do is engage in counter-revolutionary efforts uh, to try to upend uh, a status quo that is pretty much irredeemably corrupted by the forces of liberalism and progressivism. Uh, and you can also read Chris Rufo's latest book uh, on, you know, America's Cultural Revolution, where he says we need to stage a counter-revolution, right? Uh, engage in this kind of counter-revolutionary Gramscian long march through the institutions, which he's trying to carry out, uh, and reshape the country uh, in our image. Now, people think that that's strange, including no small number of American conservatives. Think about the never-Trumpers. But one of the things that I point out is that when you understand that conservatism or the political right isn't fundamentally about conservation, uh, but about acknowledging the recognizable superiority of people, it makes an awful lot more sense, right? Uh, so where conservatives are comfortable uh, or the political right is comfortable with the ruling elite uh, in society, uh, then they tend to be conservative, right? Uh, they tend to say, we will have to cautiously manage change uh, as you know, the same goes, uh, change what we must to conserve what we can, right? Uh, and this is a very important stream uh, of conservative thought that goes all the way back to somebody like Burke, right? Uh, but there's another stream of conservative thought uh, that Corey Robin very nicely diagnoses, uh, sorry, or rightly thought that Robin very nicely diagnoses in the reactionary mind, uh, where he says, when the political right thinks that the left has been in the driver's seat for too long, uh, then they switch gears and say that actually uh, we need to retake power or we need to seize power for the first time uh, in instances like what you see amongst conservative revolutionaries uh, in the Weimar Republic. Well, they'll say the old elite uh, that was supposed to put a check on socialism and liberalism has utterly failed. So we need is a new elite uh, that will actually be effective in doing that. Uh, and it will institute a new kind of utopian society uh, that will permanently uh, subordinate those who deserve to be subordinate and elevate those who deserve to be elevated. Uh, and there are many instantiations of this way of thinking about things on the contemporary American right as well. Think about somebody like Bronze Age Pervin, uh, who declared not too long ago that uh, he was a fascist or something worse, uh, because he believes fundamentally in this idea that conservative elites have just utterly failed uh, to hold back the corrosive, effeminate qualities of progressivism. Uh, so it's time for a new guard. Uh, that's going to be much more terrifying to take control. Uh, and that's something I think we should all be profoundly worried about, especially that, as that's what I mean gross. when I say, by the way, I mean, I've talked to people like um, Andrew Basevich, who self self describes as conservative. He's at the Quincy Institute. But I was surprised initially when I was talking to him because he was, you know, very pro Black Lives Matter. And I'm thinking, yep. how can a conservative be that? I think there is an argument that a conservative could make for reform, whereas these characters like Bronze Age pervert are so far off the beaten path of our, you know, uh, sort of Overton window of political debate that, you know, they're not okay with any type of uh, liberal reform. They want, you know, their sort of 
own, I guess they would call it their base world order of sorts. Absolutely. I mean, you didn't even I, mean, I don't know. think it's too based, but <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think it's based at all. In fact, in a lot of ways, I think that if you read BAP uh, carefully, uh, what really comes through pretty quickly is just how boring uh, he gets very, very quickly. But that's neither here nor there, right? I mean, you don't need to go to anybody who's intellectually rarefied uh, to see instantiations of this vision. Uh, just look at uh, what happened with Andrew Breitbart and Steve Bannon. Uh, you know, Breitbart was interviewed in the mid 2010s. I think it was 2014, but I might be wrong about that. Uh, and he talked about wanting to set up uh, a kind of new media uh, that was going to edge the left out. Uh, and when he was told, you know, look, Fox News is really prominent. Rush Limbaugh is you know, getting tens of millions of listeners every single day. Uh, you know, there's a gigantic s- string of right wing institutions, networks out there. What more do you want? And he said, I want all of it. Right. I don't want, you know, uh, the liberation. I don't want there to be a left wing opposition. Uh, I want you know, to be in control. Uh, and that, again, has a counter-revolutionary quality to it, since, of course, it's fundamentally a pretty anti-democratic attitude. So then where do you trace the origins of, I guess, right-wing thought? Because you you actually go back a little bit further than the French Revolution and the reaction to it was Thermidor. You, you will go all the way back to, you know, like Aristotle, right? Absolutely. Uh, so I want to be very clear. Um because the two people people ask me most about are Aristotle and Nietzsche uh, for good reason, because there are a lot of leftists who like Aristotle and Nietzsche, right? Uh, Marx famously declared, you know, Aristotle the greatest thinker of antiquity uh, and was not shy uh, about saying that Aristotle had a deep influence on his own views. Uh, And Marx, you know, was not exactly the most charitable guy in acknowledging his influences. So when he singles you out and says, you know, you were important to me, uh, then you know he was really pretty formative, right? Uh, But, you know, what I'm talking about in this book isn't so much Aristotle the thinker and all his diversity uh, as what I call the Aristotelian universe that has been a perennial object of nostalgia for many conservatives. Uh, and what characterizes the Aristotelian universe uh, is this belief in what Charles Taylor calls hierarchical complementarity, uh, this idea that society should pretty much emulate nature uh, in being pyramidal. Uh, there should be people at the top and people at the bottom. Uh, this can be ascertained by anybody uh, who is sufficiently rational. Uh, and it's not that the people at the bottom are unnecessary, uh, are just deserved to be kind of trampled upon. Uh, like any pyramid, you know, the stones at the top need the stones at the bottom. But it's also pretty clear that the people at the bottom aren't deserving of the same kind of dignity, status, or power uh, as their obvious superiors, right? Uh, and this vision of society as a kind of hierarchy, mo- uh, as based upon a model of hierarchical complementarity, has, during, uh, has an enduring fixation uh, on the political right, uh, because, of course, it meshes uh, with a lot of their inclinations. Uh, it meshes with their inclination to support hierarchy. It meshes with their inclination to think that the world would be orderly if it weren't for disruptive elements that emerge within society. Uh, and it messes with this idea that there is a transcendent moral order uh, that is set within eternity that our society should map as closely as possible, uh, which is also where a lot of the appeal of hierarchy uh, comes from when it comes to uh, religious conservatives, right? Uh, and this model of society as modeled according to the principles of hierarchical complementarity was pretty sustainable. Uh, it lasted for a long time. It goes through a number of different instantiations through the Middle Ages. Uh, you can see this reflected even in the artwork, for instance, the great chain of being uh, that a lot of medieval authors were fixated on. 
Don Artsakh uh, writes about this really brilliantly in his book, Poisoning the Mind of the Low Orders. But with the advent of modernity, especially people like Hobbes and Locke, uh, you see a different conception of society that is put forward. Uh, it's one where we take it as axiomatically true that all people are equal, right? Not unequal. Uh, and that any kind of inequalities that emerge in the state or in society are what need to be justified uh, because they are a deviation uh, from nature and potentially even a deviation from people's natural rights. Now, this isn't to say that many liberals aren't comfortable with a wide variety of different kinds of inequality. Of course they are. Uh, but it's the starting presupposition of equality that is such a radical break uh, with antiquity. And it's something that the political right has never become comfortable with. Uh, and that's, again, uh, why I go back to Aristotle, try to trace the source uh, of this mindset and worldview. When you say the political right has never been comfortable with liberal modernity, what do you mean by that? Because, like, I guess I, I would say that uh, th there's some thinkers that we define as right wing, whether it's, um, you know, an Irving Kristol back in the day or like a William F. Buckley that I think would would tell people that they're classically liberal. Um, so how do you sort of mesh that with the uh, critique that the right is against any form of liberalism? Or yeah. am I misinterpreting? Well, I don't think they're opposed to any form of liberalism. They're uncomfortable with various forms uh, of liberalism, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that the political right has been unwilling uh, to form strategic alliances, uh, sometimes even enacting a kind of strategic unity with especially right-wing liberals uh, where it's opportune, right? Uh, now, liberalism is its own very complex tradition, uh, but people like F.A. Hayek and Ludwig von Mises uh, or Ayn Rand, right, uh, are comfortable interlocutors uh, for conservatives uh, because they're- And, and ideas... we should say here real quick, when we say liberal in the context, we're we're speaking about the actual liberal tradition, not this sort of colloquial uh, usage of like liberal versus conservative that we have in, uh, you know, the modern uh, day. Uh, absolutely, right. And that's very important to note, right? Uh, you know, and a lot of what these figures say meshes uh, with what the political right wants uh, in very important ways. Uh, and so there's a kind of elective affinity there. Uh, but what I mean uh, by saying that the political right is not fundamentally liberal is just what, liberal, what Roger Scruton says in his book, The Meaning of Conservatism, uh, where he insists that, listen, at the basis of the liberal outlook is this idea that Society is fundamentally a voluntary union between free and equal citizens, uh, and that it is supposed to work to their mutual benefit. Uh, and where it doesn't work to everyone's benefit, people are entitled to transform society or change it uh, so that it does work to their benefit. That's putting it really simply, but that's the kind of gist of Roger Scruton's uh, unpacking of liberalism. And he says conservatism, uh, the political right, is committed to a very different uh, set of principles. It is committed to this idea that you have an allegiance to society uh, that antecedes you. Uh, and who are you to decide that your interests supersede uh, the right of society to more or less persist as it is? Uh, and deeply aligned with this, and this is something that he stresses consistently, is the need for various forms of subordination, right? Uh, you enter into society where there are rulers, right? And there are laws. Uh, and the expectation is that you will be acquiescent to those laws. Uh, and one of the most telling points that he makes uh, in the meaning of conservatism uh, is his defense of what he calls unthinking people. Uh, and that's a direct quotation, right? Where he says, listen, liberals have always praised this idea of the liberal-minded person, right? Uh, you know, in the cultural sense, the person who is critical, 
participates in the public sphere, uh, will read the National Review, but then will read Jacobin the next day and try to mediate between those two, uh, because liberals tend to be committed to this idea of a thinking public, right? Uh, and he says, actually, I say differently, that there's something really admirable about what he calls unthinking people who understand their place within society, uh, who play their little role, however modest, uh, and allowing it to function, and who don't politicize their grievances by saying that if I am mistreated uh, by my boss at McDonald's, this is something that the state should intervene in uh, or civil society should intervene in to try to ameliorate. It's up to me to deal with this kinds of problem. Uh, and this, of course, has a natural connection to this yearning uh, for society to accept a high degree of subordination, uh, since a critical public or a thinking public is obviously going to um, transition pretty quickly uh, into a, a society of liberal citizens uh, who see their union as voluntary uh, and who think that they are entitled to change the way things are to work to their benefit. And that's something that, some, that Scruton says conservatives should completely reject uh, as a basis for their outlook. So uh, could, could you elaborate that uh, a bit more with regards to Scruton's thinking on that? Because it, it's an interesting mm -hmm. point you bring up, that idea of uh, conservatism sort of demanding that you sort of know your place in society and you do what you're told, the unthinking man, because, I mean, I, I think it's very easy to question that. As you were talking about that, I was thinking of, you know, the the desk murderer, uh, yeah. Adolf Eichmann, you know, the the who is traditionally seen as the unthinking man who just did what he, he was told to do. That was his big excuse. Absolutely. Uh, and I want to stress, and this, uh, this comes through more clearly uh, in Scruton's other books, that when he's talking about reverencing the unthinking man, he's not talking about everybody, right? Uh, and this is another core point to the political right, that agency uh, and a capacity for critical thinking is something that the higher orders are entitled to uh, and that they may very well need to exercise. Uh, the problem, of course, becomes uh, emerges when the lower orders, those who are intended to be subordinate, uh, start to think that they are entitled uh, to the same rights to critical thinking uh, and indeed become citizens as the higher orders. Uh, but, you know, this outlook does not originate with Scruton, and he's very clear about this. Uh, it goes all the way back to Edmund Burke, right, uh, and Joseph de Maistre, who kind of are the pivot point into the discussion of modern conservatism in the book. Uh, so Edmund Burke, uh, I argue, is a much more radical and frankly much more interesting thinker uh, than many have characterized him. So the conventional understanding of Burke is as a kind of prudentialist, um, you know, a reformer, but somebody who says, uh, go as fast as, you know, the average person in society, uh, but no faster, right? Now, there are definitely elements of that in Burke's writings. You know, I would never deny that. Uh, and sometimes he could even endorse quite transformative reforms, uh, if you think about his support of the American Revolution, right? Uh, but by the time you get to reflections on the Revolution in France, when he really enters his conservative period, uh, Burke is very insistent uh, on this idea that there will always be enduring hierarchies in society. Uh, and part of the problem that emerges in the Enlightenment era is this idea that everybody thinks that they can become a critic, that they are entitled to endlessly examine and re-examine uh, and to critique society as it exists uh, and the leaders of society uh, as they are. Uh, and he's sometimes startlingly blunt about this in a way that is quite revealing. Uh, so in what I take to be the central passages of the book, he says, wherever you want to set man over man, it is extremely important that you ascribe sublime qualities uh, into those who will be the leader, right? Uh, you can't just have 
Louis the Fourteenth being any other man. He needs to be the Sun King, right? Uh, somebody who resides in his splendor uh, over the kingdom. Uh, and what's interesting is Burke never says that these people actually need to possess these sublime qualities in and of themselves. It's important that they have be attached to them in a certain kind of way. Uh, and he says, because this allows subordination to be easy, right? Uh, it's very easy for me to think that I am the subordinate of the Sun King in his splendor uh, because he's the Sun King in his splendor. It's quite difficult for me to think that I am the subordinate or the subject of you know, King Charles uh, with his many affairs and you know his sordid bad habits, because I just don't ascribe any kind of sublime qualities to him. And Burke was deeply concerned about what critical thinking might do to this ability of conservatives to attach sublime uh, qualities onto people, where he said, you know, all the pleasing illusions, and that's his term, uh, that uh, made society harmonious are being stripped away by this empire of reason. Uh, and where we're left is this horrifying idea that a king is just a man, a queen is just a woman, uh, and a kingdom is just a kind of union of tradespeople uh, who can enter into it and dissolve it as they see fit. What a horrifying thing. Uh, and my response to that is, I'm sorry, but a king just is a man, right? A queen just is a woman. Uh, and a kingdom is just an imagined community that we all kind of project into existence. Uh, and maybe it has efficacious uses, uh, but we shouldn't ascribe any kind of sublime existence to it. Certainly not if we want to be pathological. Uh, and it's worth noting, and this is something that I also stress in the book, that Burke was the more moderate kind of conservative on these points. Uh, Joseph Demaestra, who was his junior. My God, like, Demaestra is like the, I, I swear yeah. to God, reading Demaestra is like reading the lyrics of a death metal or a black yeah, metal album. It is insane. Oh, yeah, definitely. And don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, I'm a Rawlsian, right? You kind of liberal socialist Rawlsian. Uh, I'll be the first to admit that Rawls is boring as fuck, right? Like nobody reads Theory of Justice and thinks like, wow, you know, I'm really into this. I'm jazzed up by it. Uh, you Whereas, read just... whereas Demaestra is, is talking about like sacrificing people upon the altar of blood. Exactly. You know, four million Frenchmen blood, four Frenchmen's blood will have to be shed, you know, as a consequence of this crime. You're like, man, this is exciting stuff, right? Uh, and this is what I argue, that Demaestra was really one of the first uh, to adopt this almost punk attitude in relationship to liberalism, where he saw himself on the back foot, kind of fighting a rearguard action against this sweeping revolutionary hegemony that was taking over everywhere. Uh, and he responds to it by making the political right something that is exciting, uh, dynamic, even a little dangerous, right? Uh, you know, in the same way that punk uh, kind of seem a little bit dangerous and on edge, right? Uh, but he's even more insistent than Burke uh, that people are not entitled to critical thinking. Uh, and they are certainly not entitled to have a say in how it is that they are governed. Uh, so taking aim at the French philosophs, he says, listen, uh, philosophy, as it's understood right now, you know, Enlightenment philosophy, is fundamentally, and I quote, a destructive force. And it's a destructive force because it submits authority to the opinions and the critical thinking of every, you know, butcher and baker and brewer out there, uh, each of whom thinks that he's entitled to be a citizen uh, and weigh in on the great issues of the day. That's ridiculous, right? Uh, authority needs to be treated, according to him, like dogma, right? Uh, it's something that you understand and that you internalize, but not something that you reflect upon and critically analyze, right? Uh, it's something that you know without comprehending, uh, if you want to use this term, right? Uh, and it's very obvious why he wants this, right? Because uh, if you have a society of critical thinkers uh, who are going to exercise their political aptitudes to try to weigh in on what's going on, uh, then what you have fundamentally is a society of citizens who don't want to be subjects 
And that's absolutely not something that Joseph Demesh wants. In the second portion of the book, or I, I think it's in part two, uh, you talk a little bit about Hegel. And I think a lot of people associate Hegel almost with the left because you had Marx and company uh, sort of trying to create a, a dialectical materialist version of his thinking. But there's also, I would argue, potentially a Hegel of the right. I mean, I think we see it a little bit with you know, a figure like Fukuyama. He is sort of a right yeah. Hegelian. Uh, could you speak a little bit about how Hegel figures into your book? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I should say, I also think that a proper reading of Hegel situates him on the left. Uh, and the reading of Hegel that I give uh, in my own personal writing and that I draw upon in my account, say, of modernity or postmodernity, uh, that Hegel is definitely a progressive, right? Uh, but he's in the book because there's absolutely no denying that he has had a extraordinary influence uh, on right-wing thought, as he has just generally the history of Western philosophy. Uh, and the right Hegelian school, as it's called, is alive and well uh, and very, very um, active, right? Uh, so I talk a lot about the influence Hegel has had on a number uh, of conservative thinkers, uh, including great conservative thinkers, I should stress, you know, from Bradley and the English idealist uh, through to Michael Oakeshott, who some of your writers might know, right? Uh, Michael Oakeshott, deeply influenced by Hegel, uh, particularly as a kind of uh, conservative idealist, uh, through to people like Roger Scruton in the Anglosphere. Uh, or we could talk about Paul Gottfried, for example, uh, who wrote an important book uh, in American conservative circles, arguing that uh, it would be good for Americans to recognize, um, American conservatives to recognize uh, the importance of Hegel for their movement. Uh, and Piecing together all their work, uh, what I say is, look, uh, it's very obvious how you can take a Hegel uh, and make him out to be a conservative thinker, um, particularly if you stress this idea that the ethical sphere needs to be understood in a nationalist and authoritative way. Uh, we need to recognize that philosophical aptitudes only lead us to understand the world as it is right now and not to criticize it. Uh, and ultimately, we need to recognize that the owl of Minerva only cries at daybreak, right? Uh, if you think that you can criticize society, that means you are moving beyond what reason and philosophy can actually tell you into the realm of pure speculation, right? Not the realm of reason, uh, because spirit isn't really intended to be a conciliatory force, right? It's meant to conciliate or acquiesce you to the world as it is. Uh, and this is the way that, for instance, Scruton reads Hegel, uh, whom he regards as the greatest conservative thinker really of all time, at least in his book, um, Conservatism, an Introduction to the Great Tradition. Uh, and, you know, I argue in the book that there are merits to this interpretation, if you read especially something like uh, Hegel's Philosophy of Right, uh, but I also try to offer some uh, criticisms of it by pointing out that, say, when Hegel defends the monarchy, uh, which he does, right, in the philosophy of right, he defends, you know, monarchical rule post-revolution. Uh, he always will say, yeah, but the monarch should just be this kind of inane figure uh, whose job it is to sign off on legislation uh, and act as the personification uh, of national spirit, right? Uh, he is not supposed to be dictating how it is that national spirit will instantiate it, just reflecting it, right? Uh, and I interpret this as Hegel essentially saying, look, you know, this is probably going to become antiquated very quickly. Uh, we don't really need it much longer. But now in, uh, you know, mid-century Prussia, uh, so I can keep my job, we'll just sign off on this and say it's fine right now. Uh, but, you know, I'm probably going to say a lot more about this in the future since I plan on one day writing a big book on Hegel if I ever get to it. Uh, 
But, you know, the jury is out, I think, uh, on whether Hegel uh, is a progressive or conservative thinker. I think they'll ultimately come back with a verdict that he is a progressive thinker, but we shouldn't dismiss those who read him otherwise. I also want to talk, and, and we'll bring this up to date into the 20th century, but I want to talk about these sort of antecedent thinkers first. Uh, we could talk a little briefly about Thomas Carlyle. I, I think the connection there to the right is fairly obvious that, I mean, I think it's inherently pretty right wing to believe in the sort of great man of history. But I, I was even yeah. more interested in a lot of ways in speaking about Dostoevsky, because I think people know Dostoevsky for his most famous works and, and things like Notes from the Underground, and they know him less for his books like uh, Demons, which I think oh, yeah. was also released as The Devils. But if you read those works like Demons, you come to see him in a very different light. Absolutely, right? And, and I want to say, uh, I think that Dostoevsky, along with Nietzsche, uh, is really at the apex uh, of the political right. I'd also add Burke to that list, right? Uh, in the sense of being a truly profound uh, conservative thinker uh, that surveys a vast swath uh, of different concerns and finds ways to systematically address them all, right? So, Right. I, I was uh, going to say it's funny. Um, I think it was John Dolan from Radio Warner that that said to me and some other people at one point uh, that, that, you know, why read Dugan when you can read Dostoevsky? It's just Dostoevsky is just like a better writer, but he kind of has some similar ideas. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say don't read Dugan at all, right? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, for any yeah. reason whatsoever. But, you know, uh, yeah, definitely, if you have a choice between Dostoevsky and Reed and, and Dugan, uh, pick up Crime and Punishment instead. But look, uh, I mean, the transition that I talk about in the book is that it's really quite important to note that Dostoevsky began his career uh, as a kind of Christian socialist, right, and a committed Christian socialist. Uh, he wrote a very beautiful book called Poor Folk, uh, that compares favorably to the social writings of somebody like Charles Dickens, uh, that really talks about a love affair that's doomed because of economic precarity uh, and sympathizes to an extraordinary degree uh, with the pain uh, of the Russian poor. Uh, and this never quite goes away uh, in Dostoevsky, even with his conservative turn, as anybody reads his novels know. Uh, you know, invariably, the wealthy... Uh, and elite in Russia uh, are depicted as considerably more corrupted than the good, honest peasantry uh, or working classes, as it were. Uh, but, you know, what ends up happening, and Joseph Frank chronicles this very expertly in his academic work on uh, Dostoevsky's politics and philosophy, uh, is, of course, Dostoevsky ends up being uh, sent to prison in Siberia. Uh, and According to his own account, what he discovers is that a lot of the working class people that he's thrown into prison with, uh, A, despise uh, middle class people like him, right? Uh, for all the reasons that you might expect, right? Uh, you know, he's soft, he's decadent, he's never really done a hard day's work in his life, that kind of thing. Uh, and also, uh, these people are nothing like uh, the kind of utopian socialist literature suggested the working class should be, right? They tend to be pathological liars. Uh, deeply, deeply violent, uh, prone to alcoholism, you name it, right? All the kind of things that you'd associate with um, kind of Russian blue collar life. Uh, and so Dostoevsky really loses his faith uh, in the idea that middle class reformers committed to socialism uh, can actually enact a kind of utopian project that will bring about a just world uh, on the back of popular support from the working class. He just doesn't believe that can end up happening. And gradually over time, this hardens into a conservative position uh, that includes a really profound uh, critique of 
socialism and liberalism on three fronts that I discuss on my book, right? Uh, the first front is satirical, uh, and this is best expressed in the book Demons that you talked about, right? Uh, where Dostoevsky is actually really funny. Uh, I mean, I've spent enough time in left-wing circles, and I'm sure you have too, uh, to know that this is somebody who spent some time in left-wing circles, right? Uh, at their worst, especially. So uh, there's a really funny sequence in Devils or Demons uh, where all these kind of progressive anarchists and socialists and liberals are meeting in a small town. Uh, they're all kind of standing uh, as deeply concerned about equality and the working class, but they're pretty much from middle to upper middle class backgrounds. They all argue about what pronouns to use, how to refer to one another, right? Some things never change. Uh, and then they kind of dive into these very long-winded, very tiresome speeches uh, that end with uh, Sipnowitz, their kind of chief intellectual saying, I thought this through scientifically and starting from uh, unlimited freedom, I wound up with unlimited despotism. Uh, nevertheless, the science of history indicates that my solution to the social problem is the only one that we can actually carry out, right? Uh, sounding almost something like a proto-Marxist. And this is very funny stuff, right? Uh, you know, he's really deflating the kind of pretensions of the left to embody a compassionate, humane concern for the lower orders, uh, suggesting that they don't even really know the lower orders all that well, uh, and that they are definitely not nearly uh, as moral uh, as they pose um, and this is effective, but what I point out in the book is that it only goes so far, right? Uh, and it's also problematic in a way that's enduring for a right-wing thought, because uh, if you present the left as basically a bunch of bumbling fools who can't even pull off a successful terrorist attack in you know, small town Russia, uh, then you really have to wonder why one should take them seriously, right? Uh, and it's in his more sustained works that I think you see the profounder critique of the left come through, uh, because this is where he really takes it seriously and starts to wonder what could happen if its ideas were successfully implemented. Uh, and there I talk about crime and punishment, uh, notes from underground, and especially the brothers Karamazov. Uh, and I argue that he offers a number of psychological reasons for why one should not accept progressive liberal or socialist ideas, uh, and a number of philosophical arguments for why one should not accept progressive socialist ideas. Uh, I can't chronicle nearly all of them here uh, because the works are very rich uh, and very nuanced and very detailed. Uh, but long story short, uh, my rebuttal uh, is to ultimately appeal to Leo Tolstoy, the other great Russian novelist uh, who was writing at the time, uh, who was also, I should quote, a kind of Christian anarchist or Christian socialist. There's a variety of different terms. Uh, and Tolstoy, I think, offers a humane and deep response uh, to these kinds of conservative uh, attacks on the idea of reform uh, by saying, listen, uh, if you're genuinely committed to a Christian ethos, uh, the way conservatives in Russia say they are committed to a uh, Christian ethos, then of course you can't support the aristocracy in its wars. And of course you can't support a society where the wretched of the earth uh, are looked down upon by the rich. And of course you can't support an imperialist regime uh, where you know the czar lives in a palace uh, talking about how he's the father of his people who's allowing to starve in the street a couple blocks away, right? Uh, and I think that that's the way the NEF needs to ultimately respond to these very deep uh, kind of Dostoevsky and critiques. Do you think there's a, a bit of straw manning in the works of these sort of pre-20th century uh, figures of the right in the sense of, you know, one thing I always hear from right-wingers like Jordan Peterson as well you know, you're trying to get rid of hierarchy and hierarchies just exist. And yeah. I mean, on a it's certain level, lobster, right? Yeah. Right, right. Well, well, what I would say is I'm not, a, I wouldn't call myself a utopian. I think even if we revolutionized uh, the way we do um, 
you know, the way we operate society, let's say we were a socialist society, I think you will see people will still have different outcomes. Um, you know, I think mm-hmm. uh, to me, it's a straw man to say, oh, the left wants to completely destroy any difference of outcomes between people. I think what we want to do is uh, level the playing field as much as possible, even if we can't reach utopia. Um, but is that kind of uh, straw manning uh, that Peterson does prevalent in these works, or do you think they go a little bit deeper? Well, I'd certainly say that Dostoevsky goes an awful lot deeper, right? Uh, now, in his mature writings, again, uh, he tends to conflate a lot of modernist doctrines together. So it's not always clear at any given time whether he's responding to liberals or socialists or Democrats uh, or all of the above. Uh, I'm fine to think that it's usually all of the above, right? But sometimes you see uh, particularities that think uh, that lead you to think you might be uh, targeting one or another. Uh, but at the basis of his kind of psychological objections to modernity uh, are this idea, is this idea that all of these modernist doctrines, liberalism, socialism, uh, and you might call it Republican democracy, are predicated on a kind of materialist ontology. You know, the idea that the world is just matter in motion. Uh, we are just animals within it. Uh, and just like all animals are equal, so too are all human beings. And the best kind of society is one that operates to fulfill our kind of hedonistic desires, right? Uh, now, I think this is a caricature, but it seems to be the kind of image of modern doctrines that's prevalent throughout Dostoevsky's thought. Uh, and he takes it very seriously in his mature works because he'll say, listen, there does seem to be scientific evidence for this. Uh, this is the way that Kant, for example, is arguing the world just works, the way that maybe Newton is arguing that the world just works. But people find that psychologically unpalatable uh, for a variety of different reasons. Like one uh, is the fact that many liberals and socialists are committed to this idea of universal human freedom, right? Uh, while also being committed to this mechanistic view of the universe, right? As scientifically ordered. Uh, and he says that that seems psychologically untenable because how can I advance a philosophy of freedom uh, if I believe that all human beings are just parts of cogs in a mechanistic machine, kind of fulfilling or unspooling our part? Uh, and this leads to psychological breakdowns for his characters like the underground man, for example, right? Uh, or, you know, let's take uh, Raskolnikov and uh, Crime and Punishment, where uh, Raskolnikov is deeply inspired initially by these kind of utilitarian ideas, uh, you know, a universal benevolence for all humankind. Uh, and he thinks that he wants to make a difference, for instance, by um, humanizing Russia's, put it bluntly, uh, rather inhumane criminal justice system, right? Uh, but then, you know, he's down on his luck. Uh, he has a pawnbroker uh, that he encounters, who's a really nasty piece of work. Uh, and he thinks, well, wouldn't it be for the best for everybody, uh, if I pulled her, took a little bit of money, pursued my legal career, and then did great things for the world, right? You know, I work hard for the people, I pay my taxes, I look after my sister, I send a little bit of money back home to mom, right? Uh, this woman isn't really doing very much. In fact, she's tyrannizing the entire neighborhood, uh, and her life already seems like it's kind of, you know, just miserable for her. Uh, and so from this idea of universal benevolence, he comes to this idea that it's okay to commit murder, right? It's sanctioned by this utilitarian ethic, uh, right? Uh, And then later on in the book, uh, he comes to the conclusion that actually, you know, maybe what this is really about uh, is this conviction that if there is no God at all, uh, there's no transcendent moral order to which we are beholden, uh, then really the only kind of morality uh, that it seems to be effective is herd morality. Uh, It's this kind of niche, proto-Nietzschean view, right? Uh, Again, precisely uh, coincides with this utilitarian outlook. 
Uh, but great men might be able to transcend this herd morality to become legislators of their on their own accord. Uh, and Raskolnikov thinks an awful lot about Napoleon as an example. Uh, and then he comes to the conclusion that maybe what this murder was ultimately about for him was proving himself to be one of these great men, right? Somebody who could step beyond good and evil, acknowledge that there is no intrinsic meaning to human life, and uh, that he can just take what he wants and legislates what he wants without consequence, that everything is permitted, uh, as the brothers Karamazov put it, right? Uh, now, these are psychologically difficult problems for anybody who accepts uh, modern ontology um, to actually kind of wrestle with. And we all know that, right? You know, there's a tremendous amount of existential literature out there uh, that discusses just these problems, okay? Uh, but my objection to this in the book is to say, well, the psychological objection to ontological materialism uh, doesn't actually really count as an objection. Uh, now, that might seem strange to many people reading the books, uh, but, you know, my point is actually to appeal to Leo Strauss and say, yeah, it's very difficult to actually think through oneself in these scientific terms, right? Uh, and maybe it's not palatable to us, but that doesn't mean it's wrong, right? Uh, it might just be that if we are just matter in motion, uh, you know, in a kind of indeterminate quantum state, then we're just matter in motion in an indeterminate quantum state. Uh, and that's not very nice to think about, but it's them's the breaks, right? We just have to learn to accept it. Uh, and Leo Strauss uh, had a good objection to the people kind of make, to try to make uh, these psychological arguments for the existence of things like uh, a transcendent religious order or natural law, where he said, listen, a wish is not a fact, right? Uh, even if you find it psychologically unbearable to live in a world uh, without a sacred natural order or divine law or natural law, uh, that doesn't mean you can fulfill your wish. It just means that you are psychologically incapable of living without that wish fulfilled. So that's the objection I make to is psychological objections, okay? Uh, but the deeper objections, I think, really come through in Dostoevsky's work in The Brothers Karamazov, uh, which you know, I think is rightly regarded as his masterpiece. It's one of the highlights of world literature and everybody should read it, uh, particularly in the dialogue between uh, Ivan Karamazov and, and Alyosha, which is kind of the heart of the book, uh, where he kind of lays out this fable of the Grand Inquisitor. Uh, but there, you know, through Ivan, uh, Dostoevsky offers, I claim, and there's huge amounts of debates about this, even amongst Dostoevsky scholars, so you know, don't take my word for it, go read the book yourself. Uh, but through Ivan, he really seems to be wrestling with the philosophical contradictions that emerge uh, as a result of this kind of modernist outlook, right? Um, so on the one hand, sometimes God, sorry, God, Ivan will say, God is just a projection uh, of human beings, right? Uh, there's this kind of Feuerbachian or even Kantian quality to it, right? That human beings invented the idea of God uh, to provide us with a source of meaning uh, and a source of the idea of goodness. Uh, but then Ivan says, this raises the profound theodizic problem of, well, if God is all good, uh, why is there so much suffering in the world? And why would humanity invent this ideal of a God uh, who would then allow all this kind of suffering in the world, right? Uh, and he runs through a variety of different ruminations on this similar theme uh, and ends with this parable of the Grand Inquisitor, uh, which again, is an extraordinary passage. Uh, and the Grand Inquisitor in Dostoevsky's book uh, is really the embodiment of all these kinds of modernist ideals uh, where he embodies the Catholic Church. Uh, I mean, Dostoevsky uh, was anti-Catholic, let's just put it that way, right? He was Orthodox Christian. Uh, and Dostoevsky is kind of conflating 
Catholicism's yearning for a universal or world empire uh, with the aspirations that um, liberalism and socialism now have to be kind of universalistic doctrines. So again, inflating them uh, or assimilating them altogether. Uh, but the Grand Inquisitor comes forward uh, to Jesus, who's been reincarnated and imprisoned. Uh, and he says, look, why did you come back? Right. I know that nominally I'm supposed to be a Christian priest, uh, but the reality is that you're just a bummer. Right. Uh, you come forward and you preach universal love and universal happiness uh, and love of neighbor, right? Sincere love of neighbor. Uh, and that's not something that human beings can ever actually accomplish because none of us are good enough. We can't actually sincerely love our neighbor and be good to our neighbor without being coerced to do so, right? Uh, and this is why we need something like a totalitarian or authoritarian state, whether that be the Catholic church, a kind of liberal state uh, or a socialist state, uh, because it can compel us to act towards one another uh, and the way that Christianity says we should voluntarily act towards one another. Uh, and the Inquisitor says, listen, you know, I've solved all the kind of problems that you were never actually able to fix because uh, you came and you died for all of us uh, and you tried to save everybody. But then look at the world afterwards, right? Did people get better? No, right? They lost crusades, inquisitions, uh, and tortured and mutilated and maimed one another. Uh, so you failed. And it's time for me to pick up the pieces where you left off. Okay. Uh, and it's an extraordinary parable, right? Uh, it's really thought provoking. And there are many different levels upon which it can be read. Uh, but his condemnation uh, at the center of this, of course, is that by moving away from this individualistic understanding of morality uh, that one finds in Orthodox Christianity, for example, this idea that I should not be coerced to love my neighbor, I should love my neighbor sincerely and act well upon that, uh, one moves towards a kind of totalitarian or authoritarian politics that is trying to force human nature to become something that it is not uh, to our benefit. And he thinks that can only lead to very dark places. So this is a question that may be outside the scope of the book, but since I mentioned the question of hierarchy and the issue of hierarchy, how do you think leftists should address the idea of hierarchy? Because like I said, I, I think there's a utopian ideal that we can okay. have, uh, but also we can recognize that, yeah, people are going to have different outcomes. Like the, what's the Kurt Vonnegut story? <laughs> um, Harrison Bergeron, right? Like, I, I think Bergeron's making fun of the right's straw man of Marxists and socialists, uh, you know, because he's, he's saying in that story, oh, you know, this is what conservatives think we are. Uh, <laughs> but really, we don't think that. Like, I mean, ultimately, we know that, you know, someone may be better at swimming than another person, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you're never going to have a, a world where there aren't differences of outcome. Um, so how would you address the question of hierarchy? That's usually how I address it. But yeah, absolutely. And I want to make it clear uh, that the political right are sometimes good students of left-wing rhetoric and left-wing politics, right? Um now, Corey Robbins stresses this in his book, The Reactionary Mind, and I agree with it, right? Uh, but the political right has never exactly been known for its aptitude uh, in deeply studying left-wing thinkers and responding to them systematically. Uh, there are a couple of exceptions, including people like Roger Scruton, right, who I think does a good job of analyzing a variety of left-wing thinkers in his books, Fool, Fraud, and Firebrands, uh, or Thomas Sowell, who wrote a pretty good book on Marxism, not a great book on Marxism, but, you know, the bar is low. Uh, but they're, you know, far and away the exception uh, that proves the rule, right? Uh, I'd also add James to James Stevens, uh, kind of critique of Mills there. But, you know, the main core of your question uh, is about, you know, hierarchy uh, and leftism. Uh, and I would 
put forward that, as you pointed out, there's never been a single leftist thinker that I am familiar with, even anarchists who have ever argued that we do not need some form of social organization in society that will entail the construction or the attention of certain kinds of higher You cut out there for a second. You said right? uh, that uh, will the construction... Oh, sorry, retail the construction or retention of certain kinds of hierarchical organization, right? Uh, even anarchists, right, uh, who are about as anti-status, anti-order, anti-hierarchy as you can get, uh, accept the need to retain or establish certain forms of hierarchical organization that are transient uh, in order to have an efficacious or um, effective and orderly social life, right? Uh, so what the left does in response to hierarchy uh, is to make two interrelated claims. Uh, the first is that, listen, each human life matters equally, right? Uh, and this is fundamentally, I would argue, also a Christian idea, right? That we're all equal before the throne of God. Uh, and consequently, this idea that there are recognizably superior people in society uh, in the sense of their lives mattering more, uh, or them being more worthy uh, of commendation by the state, that's just false, okay? Uh, and from this flows the conviction that, listen, the hierarchies that emerge or the hierarchies that we retain in society need to work for the benefit of everybody, right? Uh, now, this is a difficult question, uh, and we have to adjudicate it on a case-by-case -case basis, right? Uh, maybe you think that the hierarchies established by representative democratic government are efficacious, right? Because you think, well, yes, we do have certain kind of politicians that are elected, they have a lot of power, uh, they're able to exercise that power in ways that, you know, ordinary people aren't. Uh, but that's one way of kind of... Um, of that's one way to, to legislate uh, in a way that's accountable to the everyday citizen. And you'll think that, well, that's a pretty good way of organizing a hierarchy that seems to work for society. Uh, or more you have a more radical view, uh, like for instance, I do, uh, which is that we should extend democratic principles to the workplace. Uh, because while we might need a, a, um, a hierarchical structure uh, in, you know, the average, you know, company. Uh, nonetheless, this should be something that's determined with workers' assent, uh, and that adopting this kind of model or extending this kind of model to the workplace uh, will make the workplace a more pleasant place to live uh, and militate against the forms of domination that can emerge there. You know, if you think about something like Jeff Bezos and Amazon, you know, demanding that workers work, you know, 10, 15, 20 hours, you know, sorry, 17 hours a day uh, and carry on piss jugs, right? That, that's, uh, that's a really interesting point because I, I think people often forget in a weird way, we already live in a very conservative society. People, I mean, a lot of yeah. right-wingers will say, oh, we, we've gone too liberal. But I mean, you know, we don't really have equality in our day-to-day -day lives. I mean, we have the right to vote. But really, a lot of our structures are actually very top-down, whether we're talking about, you know, in school. It's, you know, the teacher decides, the student follows, and then the people above the teacher decide, you know, what the teacher is going to do, uh, you know, in the workplace. It's not a democratic workplace. You're doing what your boss tells you, you know, the family unit, you know, it's not a democratic sort of unit, at least in our society. So I, I think it's kind of interesting that you point that out. Oh, yeah, not at all, right? Uh, and now, listen, there are a lot of definitions of socialist, right? Uh, socialism, and I identify uh, as a liberal socialist, uh, which is, you know, itself kind of controversial for some people. Uh, but the way I would define socialism is just that socialist 
adapt the Republican principles about political authority that were first advanced by liberals uh, and want to extend them to the economy, right? Uh, particularly modern day socialists. And a very good example of this is the calls for workplace democracy. Uh, so Elizabeth Anderson, who's a great professor uh, and political theorist at University of Michigan, has a really good book about this called Private Government, where she says, listen, if you told the average American uh, that the government uh, was going to tell you when you could go to the bathroom, what you could post on social media, what clothes you were going to wear, uh, who it is that you can date and when it is that you can date them. Uh, there would be fucking riots in the street, right? Uh, people would be talking about big government, dramatically overreaching. Uh, all the guys with the snake flag would be saying, don't tread on me. How dare you do this? Uh, and justly so, right? But she says, it's very telling that the minute Americans go to the workplace, whether that's Amazon or Walmart uh, or wherever it happens to be, they will absolutely accept uh, being told that these are the expectations, you are a subordinate and you will accept them. Uh, and that's because we've decided to draw this really arbitrary line uh, between the extension of Republican liberal principles in the political sphere uh, and the extension of Republican political sphere principles in the economic sphere. Uh, and I would argue that the next great battle to be won for liberty, equality, and solidarity is precisely in this battle for workplace democracy and democratic socialism. I want to talk a little bit about World War II and <laughs> yeah. conservatism and the political right since World War II, because I mentioned earlier, you know, if you're a big proponent of hierarchy and like you have to be subordinate to uh, your higher ups. I mean, you look at World War II and you're like, well, that seems like it could lead to the road to ruin and, you know, destruction. Um, like I said, you know, I mean, we have the case of Eichmann. Now, I personally think Eichmann was much more aware and much more ideological than a lot of oh, people yeah. would like to admit. I, I think he sort of took on the uh, image of being or the persona of being, oh, I was just doing what I was told. But Let's say that that's the truth. I was just doing what I was told. You know, that doesn't really, you know, uh, score many points for the idea that we should always be subordinate to our higher ups. So how does the political right deal with that issue? I mean, Absolutely. in the 20th century. Yeah. So this is a really complicated question, uh, and your readers might be interested to know that the last chapter in the book, and really I think the best chapter in the book, uh, deals with the far right uh, and the transition to fascism. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff written about this, and um, I don't want to kind of self-plagiarize by saying too much about it. Uh, but the rise of fascism uh, is a really remarkable kind of phenomena uh, in several respects. Uh, it's a remarkable phenomena because what you start to see uh, with the antecedents to fascism uh, are various conservatives and right-wing thinkers saying, listen, uh, first off, uh, we have really failed in turning back the tide of egalitarian modernity, you know, to invoke my title, right? Uh, the left seems to be advancing everywhere, and it's advancing in part because democratic majorities or large numbers of people in the country, or sorry, uh, in continental Europe and America, find its methods of the people controlling the government appealing, right? How could they not? Uh, and so what you start to see are many authors on the political right uh, and many uh, activists on the political right try to find new ways uh, of making right-wing thought and making right-wing principles more appealing uh, to the lower orders. And there are a wide variety of different techniques that are deployed to do this. Uh, but a very prominent one is to say that you belong to an elevated people, right, uh, or an elevated nation. Uh, therein lies your superiority. Uh, and yes, it may be the case that we are not going to grant you full democratic control in, say, the Kaiser's Germany, uh, but you can 
rest easy knowing that even if you are an aristocrat within Germany, you are still an aristocrat compared to the rest of the world through being German, right? Uh, and this is a very powerful message that has resonance for millions and millions of people. And it really demonstrates uh, how the political right is able to assume a kind of demotic uh, or democratic quality, uh, even if it's still supportive of various kinds of authoritarian regimes in practice. Uh, and the second thing that a lot of right-wing authors learn from the left or from their experience dealing with the left uh, is that conservative elites really aren't very effective uh, in holding them back, uh, at least insofar as they are conservative. Uh, and so this is where you really start to see figures like Nietzsche uh, emerge, uh, who argue that, listen, uh, all these kinds of stuffy aristocratic conservatives in the vein of Audubon Bismarck uh, are utterly failing uh, and holding back the creeping tide of socialism and liberalism, which is ascendant everywhere. Uh, Audubon Bismarck has tried really hard uh, to prevent the socialists from getting a kind of leg in. Uh, and yet, and here he is, adopting many of their policies, acquiescing to them, uh, and even educating the working classes to become masters, right, uh, through granting them access to things like um, universal education. Uh, that's a ridiculous idea. We need to educate the workers to be what they are, which is a slave class, right? Uh, but through this kind of attitude, you start to see uh, an emerging set of ideas, uh, which is that a new elite needs to kind of emerge, one that is going to overturn the sclerotic, ossified aristocracy of Europe uh, and establish a new kind of right-wing elite uh, that's going to be much more effective uh, in combating the creeping tide of liberalism and socialism. Uh, and this really comes together with this increasingly demonic approach to politics in fascism, right? Uh, which I follow Griffin and define, arguing is um, a kind of palingenetic ultranationalism, uh, where the idea is put forward that you belong to this mythical entity called the ultranation, right? Uh, which usually doesn't conform to the boundaries of your actual nation state. Uh, this uh, ultranation uh, is a great transcendent entity that has endured for a long period of time. Uh, and if things were going properly, uh, we would be a great people who are essentially masters of the world, right? Uh, or at least masters of an extraordinarily large imperial space. But because of the corrosive effects of liberalism, socialism, uh, and democracy internally and externally, uh, our societies have become decadent, effeminate, lost their martial edge. Uh, and we have elites in power who are sclerotic uh, and again, incapable. Uh, of doing what's necessary. Uh, so what we need to do is put our faith uh, in a fascist leader figure uh, who will adopt authoritarian powers and he will be able to bring our people to greatness uh, and will assume our natural or preordained or destined role uh, as lords of the world, okay, or the master race. Uh, and what makes this interesting uh, is it has, again, this demotic quality uh, and, well, this conservative revolutionary quality. It has the demotic quality in that the fascist leader uh, is supposed to reflect the will of the people. Uh, in fact, there are some fascist thinkers who argue that the leader can implement the will of the people even better than a democracy could because he will have no checks on his power the way that a parliamentary democracy would have checks on his power. So they can be unbridled and advancing the kind of will of the people. And, and I guess, I think there's also probably right-wingers and conservatives that would say, I think this gets into a Schmidtian form of thought, but, oh, yeah. um, you know, well, you know, yeah, you can have this authoritarian leader that uh, will carry out the will of the people. And if he doesn't, he'll just be overthrown, I guess, is the thinking that some on the right have. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, and this, again, leads to the kind of conservative revolution equality to it, which is that uh, once the leader is in power, 
yes, they are going to reflect the will of people, but they won't be accountable to the people, right? Uh, there will still be the lower orders who are essentially subordinates who will carry out the will of the Fuhrer, the Duce. Uh, and, you know, they will be elevated through doing this uh, without needing to be granted agency through doing this. Uh, and this is really where you start to see the emergence of Eichmann-type personalities, to come back to your initial point, uh, where somebody like Eichmann uh, is consistently told that by submitting your reason and your aptitude for critical thinking uh, to the higher kind of reason of the Fuhrer, uh, you will be elevated, uh, you will get to feel that you are part of the master race, uh, and you will help us engage in this this campaign of imperial conquest uh, and murder and genocide uh, that will ultimately leave us being masters of the world. Uh, and you'll get to play a part of that and be a kind of mini aristocrat with your, in your tiny kingdom. Uh, and you can see why that would be deeply appealing uh, to use Hannah Rent's phrase, to a mediocrity uh, like Eichmann, right? Uh, who maybe in another life uh, would have just been a kind of tyrannical or not particularly nice white collar boss uh, you know, working at a paper mill or something. Uh, but you give him this kind of outlook and you give him the tools uh, and all of a sudden he can be pushing people into gas chambers rather than pushing pencils into pencil sharpeners. Yeah, I, I was going to say, to go back to what I said, I mean, what would the role w with an authoritarian leader like that be? Like, if there's no accountability, I, I mean, how, what would the state of exception be for a leader like that to be overthrown in like if you were to pose that question to a right winger well what if they don't carry out the will of the people then what uh, i mean how would they likely respond to that well this is one of the points where i have to say you have to look back to the rationalist roots uh, of many forms of right-wing thought right so this is one of the points that griffin highlights and other commentators on fascism like paxton also stress uh, which is that the alternation doesn't exist really right uh, again it's kind of a sublimated projection uh of a mythological ideal. Uh, and some fascists were even willing to acknowledge that, right? Uh, Mussolini in the 1920s uh, once responded to criticisms uh, of his kind of reading of Italian history and, and metaphysics of saying, who cares uh, whether what I'm saying is real or mythological? And there's a kind of Sorelian quality to it. Uh, it's a myth and it's an edifying myth. It's an elevating myth that uh, allows the people to kind of feel bigger uh, than they actually are. Uh, but the problem with this, of course, is that the fascist leader's ability to sustain themselves as the leader is really dependent on their ability to propagate this myth successfully, have it be internalized by many subjects, uh, and have it be solidified by their charisma, right? Uh, and to use Weber's term, their kind of charismatic authority. Their, their uh, cult of personality. Yeah, yeah, their cult of personality is a great one. Uh, once they become divested of that effectively, uh, then the mystique wears off very quickly, right? Uh, and this is, of course, what happened to Mussolini let's say circa 1942, 1943, right? Uh, well, you know, Italy was carrying out a project of imperial expansion. Uh, most Italians, or at least many Italians, for the most part, went along with the regime uh, and its expectations. Uh, but once the Allies landed in Sicily, and it was very apparent that uh, Duce had led the country into a disaster, then boy, oh boy, could they not get rid of him fast enough, right? And yeah, I mean... If you read the news reports when he died, I mean, the, the people were delivering soccer kicks to his head. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't support the death penalty in any circumstance, but, uh, you know, I might make an exception for uh, fascist heads of state and fascist uh, collaborators. Uh, you know, and something similar uh, happened uh, to a lesser extent with Hitler. If you think about um, the insurrection in 1944, uh, but it, there's a really dark 
reality, uh, which is that he never lost his charismatic authority or the power of his cult of personality to the same extent uh, as Mussolini did. Uh, now, there are a lot of very complicated reasons uh, why this happened uh, and why the war essentially ended, uh, you know, literally, you know, uh, with a battle for Berlin uh, and a kind of apocalyptic destruction of the country uh, rather than the surrender uh, of Germany after they had deposed Hitler. Uh, but that gets us into World War II history in a much more detail and we probably shouldn't dwell too much on it. So I want to play devil's advocate here for a second. I know we've been mm -hmm. talking about authoritarianism here, but mm -hmm. I, I suppose one could make the argument that on some level you need authority, you know, and figures that wield authority. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we would be living in a sort of law of the jungle. You know, I've seen right wingers use this argument to argue against, you know, sort of um, libertarian ideals. So how would you address that? Sure. Well, look, uh, I think that socialists have par themselves partly to blame uh, for the association of democratic socialism with a kind of anarchism, right? Uh, and also, I should add, echo liberals uh, partly have themselves to blame uh, for the association of liberalism uh, with a kind of anarchical impulse, right? If you think about this idea of laissez-faire, right, uh, or the insurrectionary individual who is supporting a revolution against the established order, uh, those weren't really originally socialist ideas. They were liberal ideas, right? Liberalism uh, is the kind of ideology that set off the American Haitian uh, and French revolutions, right? Uh, but if you examine the work of any liberal or any socialist author carefully, you see an acknowledgement of the fact that there is clearly a need for law and order uh, of a certain kind of type. Uh, and again, this is where you see a different set of principles animating uh, liberal and socialist views about the proper kind of legal order that should be established in the aftermath of a transition to their ideal form of society. Because where conservatives or the political right would say the ideal kind of order is one where agency is concentrated in the hands of the deserving elite uh, and subordinates aren't entitled to that same degree of agency. Most liberals and pretty much all uh, non-authoritarian socialists, you know, uh, would say that since all people are morally equal or normatively need to be regarded as equal, uh, political institutions need to be accountable to the demos or to the ordinary citizen uh, in certain kinds of important ways. Uh, now, how this accountability is understood really differs a lot between the different theorists that we can talk about, uh, the different political parties that Yin sees, uh, but there is this kind of core conviction uh, and it's not one that is shared broadly on the political right. One thing I wanted to delve into, and it sort of ties into this is, I think a lot of us have an image of the right wing, especially since Reagan, as being, you know, very deeply, at least in an economic sense, mm -hmm. libertarian. You know, I, I think it gets weird because I think with Reaganism, you had the meshing of libertarian sort of capitalism with, uh, you know, the Christian right or Christian nationalist right. Uh, but I think it creates problems when we think of the right just in those terms, because you get these characters like, for instance, uh, Peter Hitchens, who wrote right. a really scathing attack on, you know, society in, in the UK after the Grenfell Towers incident. And uh, he famously said, you know, we should keep the charred remains up because this shows how selfish and individualistic our society is. And there is a strain of the right that I think one could almost in ways find appealing because it does reject this sort of libertarian everything is about the individual uh ethos and you know i was wondering if you could talk about that sort of 
strain of the right and its ties to what I would say is an idea of noblesse oblige and you know, the acknowledgement that society exists, that, you know, Margaret Thatcher was very much wrong in her, um, there is no society, only the individual sort of uh, mentality, because I, I think that trips people up at times. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to stress uh, that there doesn't have to be any kind of necessary commitment uh, on the part of a right-wing thinker to capitalism, right? Uh, and I think part of the reason that this conflation has occurred uh, is because one of the kind of idiosyncratic features in common between Marxist and um, Austrian economists and to a certain extent Chicago economists uh, was their emphasis on the centrality of economic concerns to life, right? Uh, and this inherently has a kind of modernist quality to it uh, because whether you're a Marxist or whether or not you're a um, Austrian economist or Chicago economist, you tend to presuppose that all consumers are equal, uh, at least as consumers. Uh, the only thing that makes them unequal is their ability to spend a dollar, let's put it that way. Uh, and the moral connotations that flow from that are things that are broadly debated, uh, but I don't want to get into them. Uh, many people on the political right have rejected this kind of economistic outlook wholesale, right? Uh, not, least of which, not least of which included Burke, right? Now, Burke had uh, sophisticated views on the emergent capitalist economy, uh, and Many people point out that you know he was deeply impressed by Adam Smith's arguments for markets, for example. Uh, but it's also quite telling that you know Burke, uh, when responding to the French revolutionaries, uh, he's he's deeply repelled uh, at this idea that the merchants, the sophisters, the calculators, uh, you know, the butchers, the brewers, the bakers, all these kind of petty bourgeois people uh, think that they should be in charge, right? Uh, because he says, look, you know, society is about a lot more uh, than a compact of tradespeople, again, uh, looking to advance their self-interests. Uh, society is about a kind of iron social contract between the living, the dead, uh, and those yet to be born. Uh, and it has this sublime quality to it and is consecrated by respect for aristocratic and monarchical authority. And who, how dare you, uh, with your kind of economistic ways of thinking about things, imagine that you could break uh, such a solemn contract, right? Uh, and you absolutely find this kind of idea reflected in even more extreme forms in somebody like, say, Martin Heidegger or Bapp, right? Uh, so Martin Heidegger, when ruminating uh, on economic issues once upon a time, said, listen, uh, liberalism and socialism, uh, America and the Soviet Union are metaphysically the same. That's his term in introduction to metaphysics. Uh, and why? Because he says, look, both liberalism and socialism or capitalism and socialism are committed to the reign of the mediocre, the mass man, right? Uh, ultimately, if you want to boil them down, they're both technical philosophies that are committed to this idea that the ultimate end of society is to build a better refrigerator uh, or a better iPhone, right? Uh, and the communists said, we can build a better refrigerator and a better iPhone and distribute them to more people and make more people happy. And the capitalists say, no, 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 this is the way that you do it instead. Uh, no meaningful difference between them at all. Uh, and that echoes this idea pronouncedly uh, in his arguments that he's a fascist, which I completely agree with, right? Uh, where he says, I never had any interest in economics whatsoever, right? Uh, a boring, mundane, uh, materialist kind of philosophy. Uh, and there's some anti-Semitic connotations that we could talk about there also, right? Uh, and he says, as long as the economic system you adopt works uh, for the elite rather than against the elite and keeps the people in their place, it's, I'm A-OK -okay with it, right? Uh, now, things are a little bit, these are all people who are influenced by European strains uh, of right-wing thought, uh, kind of stamp uh, right-wing movements 
uh, in Europe uh, with their kind of outlook. Things are a little bit different uh, in the United States. Uh, and I don't want to get into too much detail about it. Uh, but the alignment of the American right with support for capitalist markets uh, goes back a long way, uh, in no small part because uh, the United States was the world's first liberal society and kind of carries a capitalist outlook uh, with it from the very beginning or introduces a capitalist outlook into its national story from the very beginning, right? Uh, and you can see people like Thomas Jefferson argue for the need to create a society where the natural aristocracy will demonstrate itself through hard work and through effort. Uh, or you can see it in Madison's writings in Federalist 10, uh, where he argues that the minority needs to be protected from the majority. Uh, a lot of people don't actually know what he's talking about there, and they assume that he's talking about uh, racial minorities. And there is some of that where he talks about the need to protect religious minorities. But the minority that he's mostly talking about in Fathers 10 is the need to protect the property minority from the impulses uh, of a reckless, for the most part, poor Democratic majority. Uh, and he talks about how in any given society, there will always be class divides. These reflect enduring interests in those society. Uh, and the job of the state is to manage them as effectively as possible in the interests of the ruling orders or the interests of the property class. Uh, so I often tell my students, if you actually read Federalist 10 carefully, Madison sounds sometimes almost like a Marxist with his argument that there's an enduring class struggle that's present in any society. The only difference is that he's a right-wing Marxist because he thinks that the state uh, and indeed uh, nature should allow the capitalist to win. Sorry, I think you have a question? No, I was going to say too. I mean, even when I think BAP is at the farthest end of that, I guess oh, yeah. what I wanted to get at was, you know, I, I think there is a seductive quality to right-wingers that believe in a sort of noblesse oblige or what I would call a sort of paternalistic conservatism. Like, right. you know, th there are these conservatives now, I would say a lot of the post-liberals do this, where they yeah. talk about, well, th there is a need to care about the environment and to care about the poor and working people. And it's it's seductive because for so long, I think, you know, since Reagan, we've had this sort of right wing in this country that is libertarian and I think could be summed up with that dead Kennedy's thong song, uh, what was it? I think it was called Kill the Poor. You know, so <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's where I wanted to, before we wrap up, I just wanted to delve into that sort of bigger issue of um, the sort of emergent, emergent post-liberal right sure. and their sort of uh, noblesse oblige ideas, because I, I think it's, I think it can come off as appealing at first to some people. Oh, 100%, right? Uh, so this will require us to go back uh, a little less far uh, in the history of American conservatism. Uh, but when the new American right emerged in the 1950s, it was responding to two major problems, right? Uh, the first uh, thing that it saw as threatening was the advent of the New Deal, right? Um, advanced by FDR, uh, kind of consecrated by Eisenhower, uh, and then advanced even further by Johnson. The other thing the new American right was deeply concerned about was, of course, the demands for racial equality uh, and gender equality advanced by uh, feminist movements, civil rights movements, uh, and eventually, of course, the LGBTQ movement, very keen on kind of rolling those back. And people like Bill Buckley, Frank Meyer, uh, and Russell Kirk very effectively uh, established what they, is later called the three-legged stool of American conservatism. Uh, and this stool consists of people who are committed to free markets, right, or a kind of muscular capitalism, uh, and who are opposed to the advance of the New Deal, uh, and also, of course, don't really like communism uh, as a foreign entity. Uh, and that leads to the other leg of the steel, which of course are foreign policy hawks. We're a bit more nationalist than the free marketers are uh, because they see the United States as 
inherently uh, a country that needs to advance its geopolitical interests around the globe as a kind of new empire. Uh, but they see communism uh, as the biggest threat to, of course, American. You, you cut out there for a second. You said they see. Oh, they see communism and the Soviet Union uh, as a kind of major threat to America's ability to advance its interests across the globe, right? Uh, and the third and arguably most important leg of the stool are social conservatives, uh, particularly evangelical social conservatives, especially white evangelical social conservatives, uh, who later make up the real base uh, of the modern Republican Party uh, and who are quite comfortable, to put it mildly, with uh, various forms of dog whistle or even more than dog whistle kind of racial politics. And this three-legged stool is really held together, uh, again, by its opposition to the civil rights movement, its opposition to New Deal liberalism, uh, and and from a, in a foreign direction, it's opposition to communism, you know, godless, atheistic, materialist communism, right? Uh, and it lasts pretty well up until 1989, uh, when the Soviet Union disappears. Uh, and I'm not the first to point out, uh, including in the conservative movement, uh, that with the disappearance of communism, uh, the stool starts to really struggle to hold together, uh, because the threat of socialist takeover of markets uh, now seems to be a lot less acute. Uh, which means that the free marketers start to drift towards a kind of centrist liberalism or even progressive liberalism on social issues, uh, whereas the social conservatives start to become much more demanding uh, of seeing the kind of policies they want enacted uh, and regarding the classical liberals in the GOP as a barrier to attaining their long-term objectives, which are, you know, the rollback of emerge of abortion, uh, the containment or rollback of the LGBTQ movement, uh, and of course, the rollback of the feminist uh, or women's rights movement. Uh, so starting in 2008, uh, I would argue, with the end of the Bush administration, uh, these things really start to come apart, right? Uh, and there are a lot of kind of painful movements that the American conservative, uh, there are a lot of kind of painful gestures uh, that the American conservative movement goes through uh, as it tries to mesh out a new fusion uh, and figure out a new set of enemies that it can commit itself against. Uh, but ultimately, I think that we're seeing the emergence of a new three-legged stool uh, that's appearing that tends to define uh, the modern American conservative movement. Uh, but this stool looks very different uh, than the old one, right? Uh, so the new stool that is kind of shaping uh, the American right uh, is, consists of three legs. Uh, and the first leg are national conservatives. Um, national conservatives tend to believe that America should pursue its interest uh, and use state power to advance uh, various kinds of cultural norms using the law if needed. Uh, then you have the post-liberals who you mentioned before. Uh, these are mostly Catholic intellectuals, but by no means exclusively. Uh, they include people like Patrick Deneen, Adrian Vermeule, uh, on some days Art Rusty Reno, although Yoram Hazoni characterizes him in that common stead, uh, and Sarbamari. Uh, and the argument of these figures is that we should advance social conservative policies using the power of the state, uh, but they justify this by appeal to more universalistic liberal, or sorry, uh, religious principles, first off. Uh, and they also think that the state should play a more active role uh, in reintroducing this sense of economic noblesse obligé that you were talking about, right? Uh, so, for instance, Patrick Deneen thinks that the state should play a role, in addition to advancing social conservative policies, uh, in securing for everybody a job or access to a job to guarantee employment in some way, shape or form. He also thinks that we should do more to kind of reinvigorate the labor review movement because uh, he sees this as 
essential to community formation. Uh, and he supports a variety of family-oriented welfare measures you know, to boot. Uh, Sormamari is even more radical uh, in calling for the institution of various measures that we might align with something like workplace democracy, right? Uh, and he's sometimes characterized as a kind of conservative social democrat, right? Uh, I've even seen people call him a conservative socialist, although he rejects that label, right? Uh, so there's this more economic dimension to post-liberalism that you don't see, for instance, uh, in national conservatism. And then the third leg of the new stool uh, are what we might call the eugenicons uh, or what I call the Nietzschean right. Uh, and they're the ones that are most aligned with a kind of classical liberal ethos. If you think about somebody like Richard Hanania or Peter Till uh, or Curtis Yarvin, uh, and they basically have this very uh, social Darwinian view of the market, let's put it that way, right? Uh, where the market is intended to sort people into their natural ranks within society. Uh, it's not a kind of utilitarian mechanism for distributing goods. It really has this kind of moral function. Uh, and they often uh, will align this not very subtly uh, with a new kind of racial politics as well. If you think about their deep enamorment with somebody like Charles Murray, right? Uh, and at the very extreme ends of this, uh, you see people like Bao, right? Uh, who doesn't have a lot of time for markets, uh, but is certainly attracted to this idea that we need a new kind of rank ordering in society. This doesn't need to be based on any kind of religious principles. Uh, it doesn't need to be based on any kind of economic principles. Uh, what's important is that the demonstrable elite in society uh, are able to subordinate the lower orders. Uh, and he will often give a kind of vitalist gloss to this. Uh, and he's opposed to Darwinian uh, adaptability theory, right? And they'll say that, look, uh, we should be kind of like lions uh, roaming in the oh, jungle. Almost like Sorellian, if you will. Yeah, exactly, right? Uh, so social Darwinian rather than authentically Darwinian, right? That, you know, what we need is a competition that will allow the best to rise. And then once you get to the top, uh, then the best can pretty much do whatever it is that they want. Uh, so this Nietzschean right eugenicon movement, uh, I think makes up the third leg of the new kind of hard right stool that's emerging in uh, American circles. Uh, and I'm critical of all elements of this, uh, but I'm and, most and critical. And they're critical of each other too, I think we should say. Oh yeah, they're, say. they're very critical of one another, right? I mean, just like the original three-legged stool, the elements of it had deep disagreements with one another. I, uh, I these think people miss that a lot because like, even if, even if, and I, I know we have to start wrapping up soon, but uh, <laughs> even if you look at someone like Richard Hanania, I think it's very interesting. I mean, he may have started out as one thing. I I still think he's very much on the right, the far right, whatever you want to call it. But oh, yeah. now he's sort of a promoter of like, I want to have like a liberal technocrat state ruled by capitalism, you know, yeah. uh, the, sort of this almost like neo-Reaganism uh, with a lot of racist characteristics. Uh, but, you know, I don't think he would necessarily agree with people like BAP. You know, I mean, these are all ideologies that I disagree with, but it's interesting that they fight with each other as much as the left fights with each other. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I want to stress these are all ideal types, right? Once you get into the real world, uh, it's a lot messier than that. And all these groups argue with one another, talk from one another, draw mutual influence from one another. Uh, the reason I kind of conflate somebody like Hanania uh, or Teal or Yarvin uh, with BAP is that uh, if you think about the kind of attitude they take towards the market uh, as a sorting mechanism. Uh, it's very reflective of the same kind of attitude that somebody like Ayn Rand took, right? Where I, I was going to say, do you, do you think that there's much... I, I've often said to people that, to me, characters like Yarvin and Hananya, I don't feel like they're actually that far off from already existing neoliberalism. I think in a way <laughs> yeah. they like neoliberalism. 
Well, they can be. And I mean, neoliberalism itself is a very diverse uh, like um, tradition, right? Uh, so they would be very divergent from somebody like F.A. Hayek, right? Uh, and Rand was famously brutally critical of Hayek uh, because Hayek, again, said he was not a conservative. And he wasn't a conservative because he didn't acknowledge the existence of recognizably or demonstrably superior people. Uh, he was extremely critical of the idea that the market would ever be something like a meritocracy. Uh, and he frankly acknowledged, listen, like, in the market, you know, rich and very useless people will thrive uh, and hardworking, industrious people very well might not rise to the top, even though they might be deserving of that. Uh, and this is also why Hayek would argue for something like a minimal social safety net, uh, which included healthcare, potentially a universal basic income, uh, you know, various kinds of social services in order to keep people from falling below apart at a certain point. Uh, Ayn Rand deeply disagreed with this, right? Not just because she was committed to uh, a more deontic uh, approach to the market, but also because she saw the market uh, in its ideal form uh, as, again, something like a Nietzschean sorting mechanism, uh, except in real life, right, where the truly exceptional people, you know, the creative types, the geniuses, the Howard Works, the John Galt's, uh, they would be allowed to exercise their higher aptitudes. Uh, and this would benefit the people below, potentially. Uh, but if it didn't, you know, that's not, you know, something that we need to worry all that much about, because these are people are secondhanders. They don't contribute all that much anyway. Uh, and this obviously bleeds very directly uh, into Marie Rothbard's work, uh, who, you know, engaged deeply with Rand, argued with her, uh, drew a lot of inspiration from work. Uh, and through that, people like Teal, Garvin, uh, Hanania, right? Uh, and BAP also uh, kind of follows in this Nietzschean genealogy, uh, just much more directly, right? Uh, he doesn't have time for a lot of that economic nonsense, right? Uh, and this idea that the market kind of is the sorting mechanism, uh, because for the same reason as Mar you know, Nietzsche uh, didn't have much time for economics, he just thinks that the market will never fulfill this kind of function, at least adequately. So before closing out, I guess, how are we to sort of parse the, I guess, emergent rising stars of the, well, not just emergent rising stars, but also uh, figures that have been around for a while that are becoming more prevalent within the new formulations of the right, whether we're talking about the integralists on one end, or we're talking about this sort of Peter Till lackeys on the other end, um, et cetera, et cetera. Because I think it really trips people up. You know, when you talk about someone like Richard Hanania, I mean, Hanania can really trip you up because, I mean, I think he's very racist, but oh, he's also pro-immigration for really weird racist reasons. Um, yeah. Whereas someone like Michael Lind, who I would say is, you know, kind of lumped in with people like Sarabamari, is very immigration restrictionist, uh, sort of believes in uh, high wages, low welfare state conditions. So he's very different than Hananya because Hananya is pro-immigration. The other's uh, immigration restrictionist. So it, it, how, how are we to like tackle these different prongs who don't even agree with each other and understand that the right isn't sort of this... I guess, gelatinous blob. I mean, there's many different competing factions and I think we have to take them all on. Yeah, absolutely, right. Uh, and I just wanna say uh, as a kind of personal note, uh, writing this book really made me appreciate that to a degree that I certainly didn't before. Uh, in fact, I would be willing to put forward uh, the argument that the right is just as if not more diverse uh, than the left or liberals. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that, uh, partly that relate back to 
uh, the rights emergence as reactionary uh, kind of movement that's trying to quell these universalistic doctrines, but we don't need to get into that. Uh, but it is important to evaluate each of these figures, each of these movements, each of these belief sets independently, uh, recognize their appeal, and uh, to try to confront it with our own ideas, right? Uh, and I also want to say that I don't regard all right-wing movements or all right-wing figures equally, right? Uh, kind of seem like a paradox, right? Uh, you know, that's a get leftist, but it's true. Uh, so for instance, I have a lot more respect for somebody like Saurabh Bamari, and if I'm more willing to dialogue with somebody like Saurabh Bamari, then I am somebody like Hanania or Bab. Right. Uh, and the reason is because- Well, uh, I, 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 that's one of the reasons I had Amari on is just the, I mean, the, the uh, to their credit, um, whether we're talking about Deneen or Amari, and I do want to point this out to listeners because I've had people ask me, why do you have someone like Amari on your show? I mean, the, the fact that that end of the right, this what's called the Catholic integralists, are pushing back against the eugenicists, right? I, I think that's laudable. I do as well, right? And I commend Lind for uh, his article on the eugenicons. You know, but the short story is that like uh, people like uh, Deneen uh, or um, Amari uh, or Yoram Hazoni in some moments uh, are at least committed to this idea that we should try to secure the flourishing uh, of all individuals. Now, I don't think they're committed enough to this. Uh, of course, I would think that as a liberal socialist, but we can have disagreements or meaningful disagreements uh, about our differences on these points. Uh, and this is again, where I draw a pretty firm line, right? Uh, what differentiates these more palatable uh, figures from somebody like, um, BAP, right, uh, or a fascist like Richard Spencer uh, or Steve Bannon, uh, is that these are figures who are far more willing to engage in rapidly dehumanizing rhetoric uh, and to castigate vast swaths of humanity or even the majority humanity uh, as vermin, yeast, scum, bugmen, uh, undeserving little people. I mean, the ray of insults is truly varied. Uh, and that, to my mind, uh, and I'm not afraid of appealing to this term, is evil, right? Uh, and I'm not afraid of that term because I think it has the only appropriate connotation uh, when describing these kinds of outlooks. Uh, now, this isn't to say that they aren't able to put forward aesthetically appealing arguments uh, for their evil ideas uh, and to convince some people that they are seductive, right? Um, but I think we need to be very resistant of them because we've seen uh, where these ideas go. Uh, they go to Auschwitz, right? Uh, and I think that Adorno is very right uh, that when one thinks appropriately uh, about something like Auschwitz uh, and the kind of malice that is required to get people there, uh, it can genuinely make you wonder uh, what human life, what the purpose of any human life is, because it's so baffling that people would do that. Uh, and I have no truck uh, with anything that leads us down that path again. Uh, just one last question. I promise to let you go. I know you have to uh, have dinner and whatnot, uh, <laughs> as we all do. But uh, we didn't get to talk much about Alexander Dugan. And I know you <laughs> cover Dugan in the book. The one thing I wanted to cover with this, and it sort of goes back to the conversation we were having about uh, variance and diversity within the right. Mm -hmm. Dugan's a very interesting figure because, I mean, in my reading of Dugan, he is, I, I would call him a fascist for certain, he uh, but he's much less interested, I think, in very strict racial categories. Mm -hmm. He seems much more interested in things like time, space, and empire. Um, and 
one of the things that I think could happen in the future with the political right, and maybe Dugan is an example of this, is almost um, like a multiracial fascism. Uh, maybe that's paranoid on my part. Uh, but do you think that should be a concern going forward? A Not even just a multiracial fascism, but like a multiracial political right. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is concerned, right? So it's important to note when one looks at the history of fascism, right, that Italian fascism, for example, uh, wasn't initially uh, committed to a kind of biological racism, right? Uh, it was definitely committed to a form of ethno-chauvinism, uh, and it demonstrated an extraordinary amount of biologically racist attitudes uh, towards sub-Saharan Africans in particular. Uh, but for instance, it wasn't committed to anti-Semitism initially, the way that Nazism was. Uh, and sometimes uh, Italian fascists would even talk about forming something like a pan-fascist union uh, or projected this idea of what was sometimes called universal fascism uh, as a political ideology that could transcend the Italian state, right? Uh, and many fascists, and I include Dugan in that list, uh, who are operating today are committed to a similar kind of idea, right? So if we look at Dugan's work, particularly uh, some of his introductions to Eurasianism, uh, his idea very much falls in this fascist mode uh, where he talks about how Russia was once a great country, uh, and that includes when it was the Soviet Union. Uh, it was, you know, a spiritually efficacious country. It was committed to uh, a kind of grand historical project. Uh, and then it was defeated by a combination of external enemies, the United States, uh, and internal enemies, you know, people who are committed to liberalism, democracy, uh, and the importation of Western ideas within the Soviet Union and the Russian sphere. Uh, and he projects this idea that what Russia needs to do uh, is form a Eurasian Union uh, with other disaffected anti-liberal states uh, and disaffected anti-liberal movements, which include white nationalists, Islamic fundamentalists, uh, various forms of kind of Christian nationalists, you name it. Uh, and these groups will cooperate with one another under Russian leadership uh, to confront the United States uh, and its allies, uh, ultimately drive them into the sea uh, and condemn them to hell. Uh, and if you think I'm exaggerating, you know, read Introduction to uh, Geopolitics, right? Um, or Foundations of Geopolitics, sorry, long day. Uh, you know, he is not afraid of talking about fire and brimstone uh, as being the ultimate endpoint for a lot of these people. Uh, and that's a very typical kind of fascist mythos, right? Uh, you know, it combines a kind of sense of ressentiment and a revenge narrative uh, with postulates of grandeur and palingenetic renewal, uh, coupled with this idea that the contemporary Russian state or the contemporary Russian nation state uh, is inadequate to a great country like it. So the borders of the world need to be renegotiated. Uh, and ultimately, Russia and uh, via Russia is supposed to be uh, a world hegemon, right, uh, and overtake the United States uh, in that role. Uh, and Dugan is willing to ally with anybody who thinks will help him get by with this project, right? Uh, and that includes all the groups that I was talking about before. Really, the only criteria is that they be sufficiently illiberal and sufficiently anti-American. Uh, now, whether or not this project has any kind of long-term sustainability to it, I'm very skeptical, right? Uh, and one of the reasons I'm very skeptical, of course, is that the, one of the expressions uh, of this kind of grand imperialist project was the Russian invasion uh, of the Ukraine. Uh, that Dugan very, very, very rhapsodically cheered on, uh, and he conflated uh, with exactly the kind of Eurasian building project uh, that he talked about in his works, right, where Russia would expand its borders westward, uh, kind of renegotiate uh, the 
circumstances that were imposed upon it by the breakup of the Soviet Union on the part of the Western powers uh, and kind of reassert itself uh, as a global imperial power. Uh, and the conflict is still ongoing, right? So I don't want to prophesize anything here, uh, but I think that any sober look uh, at what happens would say, show that Russia is definitely not uh, the kind of muscular imperialist state uh, capable of aspiring to world hegemony that Dugin really wants it to be, right? Uh, it's still possible that the Russians might win the war uh, and seize large parts of eastern Ukraine and the Crimea, right? Again, I don't know. Uh, the Ukrainians launched an offensive not too long ago that seems to have been marginally effective, but certainly hasn't turned things around uh, the way that many Western observers wanted. Uh, but the Russians have suffered hundreds of thousands of casualties, lost an extraordinary amount of their equipment. Uh, the war is now entering its second year, and they still haven't kind of brought things to a swift conclusion. I mean, I, uh, so I think if there's a Russian victory, it's a very it's going to be a very pereic one. Absolutely. Right. So even if, you know, Putin is eventually able to declare victory, you know, set up these kinds of puppet republics uh, in eastern Ukraine uh, and inhibit or get a promise from the Ukrainian regime that it won't join NATO. NATO. Uh, no one is going to sit there uh, and look at Russia and imagine that it was a victorious country the way that Hitler was, you know, Hitler's Germany was victorious and marching painlessly through Austria or painlessly through Dayton or painlessly through uh, Czechoslovakia, right? Uh, kind of gradually expanding with minimal cost uh, and bringing, you know, prestige and grandeur to itself. I, I was just going to add to that. I guess, though, I, I mean, I, I'm glad you expanded on Dugan, but I mean, in, in terms of the U.S., I, I guess what I, I think people are maybe getting blindsided by is I, I think we're seeing new political formations and new um sort of movements starting to arise that are ragtag right now, mm -hmm. uh, but could evolve into something very strange and part of a broader big tent right in the future. So I, like, for example, you know, we're, we're seeing more and more, at least where I'm at in Florida, really like far right Hispanics um, yeah. that are even willing to side with white nationalists. Or another example would be something like, and, and I wouldn't call them fascists necessarily, uh, I don't know what I'd categorize them, but something like the ADOS movement, the American descendants of slavery, who, I mean, they openly talk about being anti-immigrant and very like blood and soil. Uh, they're the yeah. blood and soil African-Americans and uh, they don't like the immigrant Africans. Uh, so I, I just think we're seeing different formations of the right occur right now that could lead to a very strange new right in the future. I was wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, I mean, to put it bluntly, anybody who looks at the American right right now can't help but think it's a little fucking weird, right? Uh, certainly if you compare it to Reagan. I, I mean, in a weird way, I, I I, mean, it sounds really strange, but I do think you could see a multiracial far right in the future. And people will say I'm crazy for saying that, but I, I don't know. I, I think no, it's possible. You know? No, you absolutely could, right? Now, I think it would be a very difficult thing to achieve in the United States in no small part because many of the leading factions on the far right are deeply committed to, at the very minimum, ethno-chauvinism. Uh, and if you scratch just a little bit, white nationalism, right? Uh, and that includes uh, many people who fall within the uh, the Republican Party's conventional base, uh, people like um, evangelical nationalists uh, or you know uh, Christian nationalists, as they're now called. So there's been some good sociological research done on this by people like um, Stephen Perry, right? Uh, where he points out that the groups that are most likely to endorse 
Trump uh, and Christian nationalism uh, are also the most likely to be wary uh, of non-whites uh, and to be sympathetic to white identity politics, as it were, or white grievance politics, right? So that's a barrier uh, that one would need to, that the far right faces uh, in trying to establish a kind of multiracial far right. Uh, but nothing is impossible, right? Uh, and again, this is one of the things that I stress in my chapter on fascism, right? That uh, aligning far right ideas uh, with a commitment to biological racism is absolutely understandable. And one thinks about the horrific legacy of Nazism, but there's nothing inexorable about that, right? Politics is about nothing if not change, right? Uh, and it's very possible that some on the far right might decide to emulate Dugan, let's use him as an example, uh, by extending fascist ideas uh, to other swaths of the population uh, and to say things like Cuban anti-communists, right, uh, belong uh, to the alternation because they're committed to the right principles. They're maybe more American than the average American. Uh, and consequently, they can be part uh, of this hard right or far right coalition, right? Uh, and that can be very appealing, right? Uh, in fact, I can think of some people who might fall into that paradigm, right? Uh, but like I said, I wouldn't hold my breath on that being achieved anytime soon. Uh, although history might prove me wrong, in which case I'm very frightened. I'd be very frightened. Anything you want to say in closing and how can my listeners uh, purchase the book? And also just what do you hope they get out of the conversation we've been having for the past two hours now? Yeah, not a problem. Uh, so my book is The Political Right and Equality. Uh, people can obviously order it on Amazon uh, or they can pick it up uh, at the Rutledge website. Okay. Uh, the Rutledge website is a, probably a good idea since I think it's 10 bucks off right now. Um, and yeah, they can rent it if they want as well. Uh, your listeners can also add me at Matt Paul Froth, uh on Twitter uh, or Facebook, uh, just Matt McManus. Uh, or you know, feel free to email me just at mattmcmanus300 uh, at gmail.com. Uh, just don't send me a long email, right? That's the thing, the more thing I warn people about. Uh, it's not that I don't want to respond to, you know, your five paragraph deeply thought out analysis. Uh, it's just that, you know, I get a lot of students who email me. I got a ton of junk mail for some fucking reason. Uh, and if you send me a five paragraph email, I'm just not going to have time to go through it. So you know, something short, you know, introductory. Um, so those are the ways that people can get in touch with me or order the book. Uh, and I guess the thing that I would want people to take away from our conversation is that, as a liberal socialist leftist, uh, I think that we need to be deeply committed uh, to this idea that all people's lives matter equally, uh, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they are, uh, and regardless of when they come into the world. Uh, and I think that our societies have done a very bad job over the past 40 years of demonstrating sufficient fidelity uh, and respect to these principles. And that has that is in no small part because of the influence and power uh, of right-wing movements going back to Reagan and indeed going back to Nixon uh, on this continent at the very least. Uh, and I think that the way that we can turn things around as in no small part by learning about the right, understanding the right, respecting that it has a sustained intellectual tradition of its own that needs to be criticized and analyzed. Uh, but ultimately the conclusion of my book is that the political right is deeply mistaken uh, in its moral convictions. Uh, and leftists shouldn't be afraid of saying that and offering reasons for that, uh, because I think with Thomas Paine uh, that we still have it in our power to make the world anew uh, and that if leftists get our way, uh, we will make the world anew into something that is better, which is why you should put your faith in us uh, and the project of liberalism and democratic socialism. Well, I want to thank you again, Matt McManus, for coming on Parallax Views. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no, it was a great time. And this was really a comprehensive discussion. So uh, yeah, whenever you want to chat again, just let me know.
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matt McManus and that you'll check out his book, The Political Right and Equality, Turning Back the Tide of Egalitarian Modernity. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash Parallax Views. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.